The Oxford English Dictionary, OED, has several definitions for preaching. One of them reads as follows, a trivial moralizing discourse. Perhaps that was in the mind of a British church leader who, in the, just in the month of December here, recommended to his pastors, all those priests in the diocese there, that they avoid preaching during the Christmas season church services. Preaching, in his opinion, would propel people away from Christ rather than drawing them closer to Christ. Preaching is a turnoff, so it needs to be turned off. Now, no doubt some of us might be partial to that sentiment. We've all seen TV preachers, especially stateside, that teach us the value of silence. We've seen preaching that is thoughtless, witless, bizarre, and appallingly unbiblical. And consequently, we might conclude, just like that British church leader, that Christian preaching needs to be muzzled and minimized. It's this very outlook, I suspect, that stands behind our attraction to St. Francis of Assisi's increasingly popular maxim, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. We like that. Alas, at this point I have to bust a, a bubble. On the one hand, I am sad to report that there is little solid evidence that St. Francis actually said that. It's a misattribution. It's more our sentiment than his. On the other hand, I'm obligated to report that St. Paul, who has a special authorization to speak for God, does not share that sentiment, and for a very good reason. Now, to be very clear, Paul is not against the embodiment of the gospel with our lives in the spirit of that fake St. Francis quotation. He's not against that. He knows that what the church declares with its lips, it should be demonstrated with its deeds. But demonstration does not and must not ever negate declaration. This reminder invites us into the theme of today's sermon, hearing, hearing. If you've been with us here at St. Peter's for the last few weeks, you'll know that we've been exploring God's revelation of Himself to humanity in the world, all of us. And when we speak about God's revelation, we're referring to the fact that God makes Himself known and that He can't be known otherwise. Now, this divine revelation, this revelation of God has come at various moments in human history. It's come through events. It's come through prophecies. It's come through voice from heaven. It's come through people, especially Jesus Christ. The Bible testifies to all of this. We've also been saying in this series that God's revelation is not just for us. It's not something that we receive and tuck away. Rather, revelation is connected with mission, the mission of the church, because God wants to be known. This is what Jesus has in mind when he brings the church into existence. We are carriers of God's revelation. It goes through us to others, and it involves all of our senses, at least the so-called primitive senses, which we learned about through Richard Sandlin, the old ones like taste, touch, sight. And we're going to add one to that list today. It's hearing. So lend me your ears for a few minutes. Now, the thesis of this sermon is pretty straightforward. Put it in a poetic form for you. What we hear makes our faith clear, wipes away every tear, casts out all fear, and gives us great cheer. You got that? Now, I'm breaking that little poetic statement down. We're going to consider three things. I'm a three-person point kind of guy, as you know. Number one, why we need to hear. Number two, what we need to hear. And number three, how we need to hear. Why, what, and how. All right? 
So let's give our attention to God's Word in Romans chapter 10. Do keep that open if you've got it in front of you. Why we need to hear. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And in verse 17, Paul says, faith comes from hearing. Now, the point of this little chain of reasoning right here in, in Romans 10 is pretty self-evident. When it comes to salvation, our ears are extremely important. Right? Verses 11 and 12, just a bit earlier, tell us that that is true for all humans, for everybody. It's very telling to consider what Paul does not say in these verses, right? He doesn't focus on what we see. He doesn't focus on what we touch or physically encounter. He doesn't even focus on our experience, the events of our lives. Romans 10, friends, is one of the most explicit statements of the transmission of the gospel and how it happens. And what is its focus? Hearing. Hearing. Why does Paul say this and not something else, right? Why does he cite Isaiah 52 right here in this passage, which says, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. In this passage, Paul takes some things for granted of which we need to be aware. So let me mention at least two of them. First, Paul, God could have made us in a variety of ways, right? We could have been winged creatures, we could have been stone creatures, we could have been sea creatures, but humans are wordish creatures. We are wordish creatures. And that corresponds to God Himself. Remember Genesis 1? God spoke, and things came into being. And in the New Testament, James chapter 1 puts it like this, Of God's own will, He brought us forth by the word of His truth. Right? So to be made in the image of a speaking God is to be a speech creature. And to be a speech creature is to be a hearing creature. Now, with regard to salvation, this is why Scripture teaches that hearing is more foundational to sight. It lines up with the way that God made us. Right? What, God, what, God, what the Bible teaches in this sense is readily confirmed by modern psychology and probably also by our collective experience. This is why, for example, a huge portion of the therapy that we receive often centers on things that were said to us or things that were not said to us. In a very sobering way, we humans can be undone and crushed, but also saved and uplifted by what we hear. We are word babies. And when it comes to knowing God, that is something that Paul takes for granted right here in Romans 10. But there's a second thing that he takes for granted. A second assumption in Paul's thought, and I like to put it like this, sight is deceptive. Paul knows this, and in knowing this, Paul is a good Hebrew. He's a good Jew. The ancient Hebrews were very different from their neighbors, the Greeks. When it came to salvation, Greeks trusted their eyes. Jews trusted their ears. Greeks explained reality and divinity based on what they saw. Jews based on what they heard. That's why the most important passage in the Old Testament for the Jewish people is Deuteronomy 6. It's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. That's the reason for the second commandment. You shall not make an image of God. In other words, if you want to know God, if you want to be attuned to the reality of God, you need to listen more than look. Now, why is this so important? What's the treasure in this kinder egg for us? In a word, 
when it comes to knowing God, a heavy reliance on our seeing can cause problems. That can be a little bit tricky for us to accept, right? Because we as a culture are probably more Greek than Hebrew, which is why statistically sight is the last of the senses that we would like to lose if we had to pick. Now, without demeaning sight, we need to hear about the limitation of our eyes. And this helps us to see why the ears are so crucial for God. I worked very hard on that sentence. <laughs> Let me make a couple of observations here. Number one, in our culture, the over-reliance on sight tempts us to conclude that if we can't see something, it's not real. But God is spirit and therefore invisible. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1. For many people in our culture, that translates into a denial of God's reality. You can't see Him, He's not real. Yet that judgment is flawed because there are many realities which are invisible to our eyes but which we would never deny. Radio waves, atoms, gravity, feelings and emotions. The list could go on and on and on. So if we want to apply simplistically the sight standard to deny the reality of God, we should be prepared to do it for all those other things too at least if we're going to be consistent. But number two, and this is even more important, so perk up your ears. Over-reliance on sight forgets that what we see is often riddled with confusion. Our eyes are easily fooled. I watched a sunset on more than one occasion last summer. On Monday, August 3rd, the sun fell below the horizon at 8.49 p.m., except it didn't. That moment actually occurred eight minutes prior. It took eight minutes for the light to travel to my eyes to see that. When it comes to sight, there's often a gap between reality and perception. To put it another way, our sight is infused with biases, right? We can and do make faulty inferences based on what we see. This is most clear in the realm of romance and humor. So let me illustrate. This is why, for example, Han Solo sees Princess Leia with Luke Skywalker sharing some sort of intimacy, and he gets angry. What he sees stirs up envy and angry, but he misperceives because they're just long lost and reunited brother and sister. In the realm of humor, this is why I sometimes enjoy, in a rather cheeky way, wearing my clergy collar while walking around downtown Vancouver holding Cindy, my wife's hand. People will think I'm a naughty priest, breaking the rules. <laughs> I don't necessarily know that I'm not in the Roman Catholic Church. Right? The confusion of sight is especially dangerous when it comes to God. Why? What's the underlying issue here? Let me put it like this. In terms of spirituality, we need to remember that while our eyes, our sight can harvest a lot of data, they're not great at explaining it. And they generate faulty conclusions. And so therefore, hearing, says the Bible, is much better for understanding God truthfully. Now, let me illustrate this. The earth, for example, is filled with signs of God. We get that basic, simple affirmation in Psalm 19. There's stuff that we can see out there. But here's the thing, even though, even though creation is filled with God, we humans, we have a terrible track record of drawing conclusions about God based on what we see in the world, what we see in nature, and what we see in our own natures. Right? That's why, for example, we see suffering in the world and we automatically assume that God is either callous or powerless. 
That's why some people see a tsunami and they automatically assume that God is judging. More seriously, that is why Hitler was considered by some people at that time as a gift from God, a new revelation, because people saw all of his achievements in the German economy in the early years and concluded as much. Yet by comparison with all that stuff that we see, what we hear in Scripture allows us to discern that what we see really fools us about God. We misinterpret. Paul knows this. That's why it says the gospel, the revelation of God, especially needs to be heard. So to know God, we do much better to listen to Jesus than to look around in the world. Now keep that in mind, and we're going to segue now to what we need to hear. We've talked about why we need to hear. We're going to talk about what we need to hear. The basic premise of Romans 10 and Paul's words here is that there is something that all people need to hear. How can we describe that? Look at verse 15 with me. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now that verse, as I said earlier, is taken from Isaiah 52, which was just read out loud for us. What we see here, in one breath, Paul is speaking about beauty and good news. And these two terms point us to the content of what we need to hear. Now good news, and many of you will know this, is that that phrase is based on a Greek word that's used throughout the New Testament. It's shorthand for everything that God has done for us and for the world through Jesus Christ. The language of good news refers to the story of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. That's what it refers to. And all of that, says the New Testament, took place for our present and ultimate well-being and blessing. Now, the word beautiful here gives us a clue about why we so need to hear that content. Behind this Greek word is a Hebrew word, the word that's used in Isaiah 52. It's na'ach. Okay? Simple word. Now, that word, that Hebrew word in the Old Testament is used for something. It's an adjective for something that is highly desirable because it sustains and enlivens a person. So in Genesis 2, for example, it's used for the trees that provided food for Adam and Eve in the garden. No food, no life. Still the same is true for us. That's what Paul's saying about the gospel. If you don't hear it, if you don't embrace it, you're dying. That's why it's beautiful. See, for Paul, apart from God, there is no real permanent life. There is no ultimate repose. There is no comprehensive contentment. There is no lasting well-being. Or to quote C.S. Lewis, God can't give us peace and happiness apart from himself because there is no such thing. Now let me convey the same point another way. There are different ways of thinking about beauty. Beauty is very central in this passage here, but there are different ways of thinking about it. Nature gives us pictures of all sorts of beautiful things, right? We can see mountains. We love this in Vancouver. Mountains, trees, sunshine, canyons, waterfalls, right? So let's, let's take something from nature, a leaf, right? And let's take something else for comparison, a helicopter. If you put a leaf beside the helicopter, what would you say is more beautiful? At first glance, the leaf's beauty is probably more striking, right? There are tons of them. They're free. We marvel at them. It's an amazing organic process. Now, by comparison, the chopper is probably not as immediately attractive, right? It's got some ingenuity, it's got some impressive design, but it's a machine, and we are in Vancouver after all. Now, let's take that leaf and that chopper and put them in a dynamic context and continue to ask this question about beauty. Let's imagine them as moving images. Right? Over the course of the season, the leaf's color change, right? It's got the, from the hues of 
green onto purple and blue and red. It blooms, it falls. You can look at it. There's a lot of beauty there. That's why people take pictures like this. But let's think of that chopper now. Now it's moving in the air. And you're on an island in the South Pacific. And you're watching it race towards you and hover above you. And it contains provisions. And it's on its way to rescue you. And you've been stranded on that island for 38 days. And the supplies ran out 21 days ago. There is life on that chopper. That chopper would be beautiful to you. You would jump and leap and sing when you saw it. And the beauty of that sight, of that chopper at that moment, would surpass all the leaves and all the autumns that you've probably ever seen. The beauty of the gospel is like this, says Paul. We need that chopper. We need God. We need to know that God has come, is coming to help us. That is what we need to hear. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to take a bull by the horns right now. Most of us don't really feel this way. Most of us don't really feel this way, right? We get that chopper story. We can understand it cognitively, but we don't think of ourselves, our circumstances, as being like people stranded in the South Pacific on an island, right? Sure, God offers us living water, but we're not parched. We don't feel thirsty. The gospel says Jesus Christ in God, Jesus Christ has acted to pardon and to save and to bless us. Yet our reply, which the great Canadian cultural critic Charles Taylor has shown to be very typical of late modern culture, our reply is something like this. Didn't know I need to be saved. Didn't know things were so bad. Didn't know I was in any sort of danger. Didn't know I was guilty. Didn't know things weren't well between me and God. And so what Paul is saying right here in Romans 10 doesn't register so well for us, right? Paul is emphatic in these words, and at an existential level, we don't know why. Our consciences are not burdened. We don't fret about our sin or our need for salvation. And by the way, what I'm saying here is not something that just applies to people outside the church. It affects all of us, myself included. We do not see ourselves as a shipwrecked people for whom everything has gone overboard. That's not how we see ourselves. And so the joy of the Lord's salvation is muted in our life. What is to be done about that? Let me offer a pair of suggestions here. And I speak to myself as much as to you because I am not immune to this struggle. Two things. Number one, remember and pray. In John 16, this is what Jesus says. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe. In other words, one of the key things on the Holy Spirit's job description, not the only thing, but one of the key things, and sometimes a forgotten thing, is giving humans a sense of their estrangement from God, of the reality of sin and guilt, that everything isn't okay with God in them. That's what the Spirit does in part. Imagine a church, a church room like this, except with no chairs. So we've had to put out wooden chairs. We're all gathered there, sitting on these wooden chairs. We're worshiping. We're praying that our lives would reflect the glory of Jesus, His compassion, His mercy, His justice, His light. We're all in this room, sitting on these wooden chairs. And then in the middle of the service, a man enters in. And he's just come back from Malaysia. He's a furniture dealer. He's been visiting some chair factories. He visited the very factory where the chairs that we're sitting on were made. And he saw the kids who built them. 
He picks up a chair and he finds a dark spot on it. And he says, this isn't varnish or stain. This is the blood of a child. Now, if that happened, you'd be convicted, especially as Christians, right? Reality has hit home. That's kind of like the work of the Spirit. This is a work that is not just that the Spirit doesn't just do in the church. The Spirit works well beyond the church. So you don't have to be a Christian to seek this type of work of the Spirit in your life. Now, don't be confused. The Spirit of God does not convict us as an enemy or as an opponent, right, but as a friend. That's what the language of John 16, of what Jesus says in John 16 implies. The Spirit is like a friend who tells us the truth because we will ruin ourselves if we don't hear it. Sometimes God's grace has a disruptive quality. This is what we need to remember. And we need to pray that the Spirit would convict us as we have need. Do you ever pray for that? Statistically, only 10% of Christians even regularly make confession in their prayer. I can imagine the percentage that actually ask the Holy Spirit to convict them to be even less. If you want to rejoice in the gospel, if you want, then you need to see your need for it. So let God read you. We need this. Remember and pray. Second thing to do, tell the truth. I want to talk a little bit about a spiritual discipline here. I call it the discipline of truth-telling. The great author of Russia, Dostoevsky, once said this, lying to ourselves is more deeply ingrained than lying to others. We humans know how to live in denial, right? We downplay, we sweep things under the rug. My extended family is fantastically gifted at that. I hope they don't listen to this sermon. We don't like to face the facts about our limitations, our failures, our shortcomings, our brokenness. We, we may not all necessarily have a profound sense of our guilt before God, but I think we can look around and see the corruption of sin in our lives, at least if we're honest enough to acknowledge it. Habitually not telling the truth to ourselves in this sense is the reason that some of us can sit here right now and don't really think we need to hear the gospel and not really find comfort and relief in it, despite the fact that within the last 12 hours... We use Facebook or Instagram to post a picture that makes our life seem a lot happier than it actually is. Despite the fact that some of us thought last week about having cosmetic surgery because we feel so ugly. Despite the fact that last night or last week we overused alcohol or drugs as a way to medicate against the discouragement and the emptiness that won't stop haunting us. Despite the fact that we can be so crippled by anxiety and stress because we feel chronically inadequate as human beings, despite the fact that we spoke scathing words to someone that we care deeply about because their actions somehow tapped into the sense that we're not worthy of love, despite the fact that we can't escape interpersonal patterns that strain and disrupt the relationships that we most cherish. All that stuff is there and more. You know this, but it's often under-acknowledged and even under-admitted even to ourselves. That is why we're not elated to see the chopper on the horizon. It's time to end that facade because you were made for more. And if you don't see that you were made for more, let me tell you right now, you have been bamboozled or you are being shortchanged. Things don't have to be this way. Christ can get us to our true form. Sometimes you can't see the bright shining stars unless it's really dark outside. We've got to tell the truth about ourselves so that we can revel and the truth about who God is for us. 
Now, at this point, I need to make a critical insertion, right? This may be the most important thing that I'm going to say to you this morning. So you've been taking advantage of the nap clause in the bulletin. Now's a good time to wake up. Those two things I just mentioned, right? Praying for conviction by the Spirit and praying to, to practice the discipline of telling the truth to ourselves. Those are daunting things, to say the least, right? They're intimidating things, and in fact, they can scare the hell out of us. Why? Well, for starters, because of fear. The fear of having our worst fears confirmed externally. The fear of rejection. The fear of being known and not loved or wanted or valued. Jesus knows this, and he has come to help. He helps us tell the truth, and he helps us to see the value of being convicted by the Spirit of God when we need it. How can I describe this? Let me put it this way. Before we ever come to terms with our brokenness, our neediness, our sin, we hear something from Jesus that we are not used to hearing. What does Jesus say? He says this, I know you. I know you to the depths of your being and in all of your mess, and nothing that ever comes out of you will ever surprise me. Nothing will scandalize me. Nothing will drive me away. And then he adds this to it. He says, I am committed to you. I love you with a love that you can't, can't even comprehend. And even in your worst moments, I want to embrace you and never let you go because I can't stand the thought of life without you. I would rather die than that to happen. And he did. And he did. Not just for humanity in general, but for each human being, for each of us. You need to know this and I need to know this. That's the very heart of the good news that Paul is preaching and says that we need to preach. That is God, that is Jesus' fixed outlook towards us before we ever say or do or admit anything. It's, the, it's our reality before you're even born. God knows that we need to know that if we are ever going to face the facts about ourselves. And he knows that the more that we come to terms with our need for the gospel, the more we'll press into him and find this thing called life abundant. Again, to quote C.S. Lewis, to be a Christian is to know that God doesn't love us because we're good, but that God makes us good because he loves us. To be fully known and truly loved, that's how Jesus loves us. And that is the love that we need more than anything else. It frees us from pretense, it humbles us out of self-righteousness, and it fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. People need to hear this. Everybody needs to hear this. That is why God has put us in Vancouver. That is the core content of the Christian gospel. Now, we often think that people are not Christians because they hear the gospel, they ponder it, and then they reject it. That's how many of us think, wishful thinking. The truth is this, is that most people aren't Christians because they never hear the gospel and all of its beauty. So in closing, let me say something now about how we hear. Look again at verses 14 and 15. Verse 17. I'm not going to read them again, but if you glance at them, you'll know that there's one word that appears more than all the other words in these verses. It's, it's the, the, the verb preach, the word preach. In a, in a very practical way, that is what hearing requires. That's what hearing the gospel requires, preaching. Right? Christians are to be carriers of the gospel. Paul talks about feet in this passage, human feet, our feet. We are to be carriers of the gospel. Now, in terms of the how of preaching, I want to say three things briefly. These are, these are relevant in a general sense for all of our conversations and gospel communication in life. They're also especially relevant for the type of preaching that we do here on Sunday mornings. 
Three things. Preaching should be regular. Right? And by the way, these three things should set your expectations. So if you see, and Alistair and I talked about this, so if we're not following it very well, you can ask us why. It should be regular. Preaching is not an occasional activity, right? At least weekly. And, I, and as I see it for practical reasons, there, there are two, two factors that mean it should be at least weekly. Number one, because we forget that we're loved. And when people don't feel like they're loved, when they don't know they're loved, bad things happen. We all know this. There's pain in all of our lives. That's true in human relationships. We forget someone loves us. We need to go hear it again and be reminded. If, if not, we, go, we get emotionally rolled around. That's true for God, too. If you're like me, you need to hear the words of an old hymn, hymn drilled into your heart every week, words that help you know that when all other helpers fail and all other comforts flee, the one who is the helper to the helpless will always abide with thee. Another reason that, that preaching needs to be regular, different reason but also important, is that we sometimes think we know what we don't in fact know. Right? It's easy to assume that you hear a few sermons, you've been to church for a while, you got God all figured out. This type of phenomenon is very common among human beings, right? I, th I thought, for example, I knew a lot about Coca-Cola. Then I decided to investigate the ingredients. I looked up all those esoteric scientific words on the back of the can. I won't tell you what I learned, but let's just say I did not know nearly as much about Coke as I thought I did. Regular biblical preaching ensures that we don't presume to have mastery over God. God's revelation is greater and vaster than we can really fathom. The works of His grace are more exhaustible than we can ever understand. Preaching reminds us of that. Second thing, preaching should be regular. It should be charismatic. I know that sounds like a 1950s appliance company brand, but it's not. It's actually a Greek word from the Bible, and I tried to think of an appropriate translation, but I couldn't. So I'm just going to say charismatic. That's a little word that just denotes all the core content of the gospel as it's laid out in the New Testament. And here at St. Peter's, just like St. Paul, we believe that that core content should always be communicated in every sermon. Now, what does that mean practically? It means that no matter what text we're looking at from the Old or the New Testament, we had better let the Holy Spirit lead us to Jesus Christ and to the gospel through that text. Preaching is not just about examining the Old Testament or the New Testament with reference to historical setting or linguistic structure or sociological context, right? It's no less than that, but it is much more. It's about announcing with celebration and gratitude and hope in all sorts of different ways that Jesus Christ does not just give us recipes that show us the way to God. He is the way to God. That should always be part of Christian preaching. And when the church grows and when there is revival, it always has been. And the last thing, certainly not least, the how of preaching. It should, how should it be done? It should be done in a contextual way, a contextualized way. That's a semi-theological word, but its meaning is pretty easy to grasp. The great Swiss-German theologian Karl Barth once quipped that the preacher should undertake preparation with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. That captures the point well. This is what contextualization is about. To say that preaching is contextualized means it must be attuned to culture. It must be cognizant of the struggles and the felt pains of human beings at a given moment in a given time. It must invite the gospel to speak into all of this, just like God has always revealed himself in the midst of, of earthy human history. 
Let me give you a little case study for what this might look like. Imagine I was preaching on 2 Kings chapter 3. That's a, there's a story there about one of Israel's kings, and that king sacrificed his child in a very brutal way in order to avoid some political disaster. Right? That, was, that was something that happened in the ancient world. If you're worried about a, a battle or something, you sacrifice something precious to you, and there's nothing more precious than a child, right? Now, the theological, basic theological point of that story is pretty simple, right? God never, never requires that. In fact, He forbids it. It's very clear from the book of Kings. But if I left the sermon at that, that, if I just said that, it doesn't seem that relevant to us, right? After all, we don't sacrifice our kids like that in Vancouver. Oh, yes, we do. Oh, yes, we do. All the time. We sacrifice our kids on the altar of professional success. For social standing. Our children pay the price for our advancements and achievements. That price is paid in neglect. And you had better believe that God still wants to stop that and that He still gives grace to help us forsake that. That's contextualization. It's all over the New Testament. It should be all over the church. At a personal level, it should be part of our efforts to encourage and counsel one another in the gospel, which we desperately need. And in terms of our relationship with people who are outside the church but are looking in with curiosity, it should shape the way that we speak about Christianity. Again, that's what you see in the New Testament. God became a man so that humans could hear and understand Him. That same principle should shape our preaching, our gospel communication. And when it does, and when that is what is heard, what we hear makes faith clear, wipes away every tear, casts out every fear, and brings us great cheer. May we hear what the Spirit is saying to the church.